another world, another time in the age of wonder. You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone. This is what I came for. Your vital essence, the dark crystal. I can feel something. Hear it almost. Don't move. Don't move? Where would I go? Quiet! Here's your host, Philip Mitchell. Hello and welcome to Trial by Stone, and this is episode 18 of the podcast for January 2016. First of all, I just want to say Happy New Year for 2016. Um, I'm certainly hoping that'll be a big year for all things Star Crystal, with J.M. Lee's novel Shadows of the Dark Crystal due to come out mid this year. There's several other things, like hopefully the reaction figurines will come out, and hopefully some other surprises along the way. Um, and also the, the Dark Crystal fan film uh, contest that's still happening, so um, if you haven't uh, known, there is a f- fan film competition that you can um, enter, so uh, the entry is closing around uh, two months from now, so uh, I, you know if you're thinking about making a film, uh, get into it right now and find out all the details, of course, on darkcrystal.com. Yeah, uh, we're going to continue discussing about the Dark Crystal creation myths uh, volume two, and um, I'll, I'll introduce um, the gang. Um, so I just wanted to start off with uh, with Bland. Bland, thanks for being on the show. Hello, uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. And then, of course, we've got um, Andrea. Andrea, thanks for coming back. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here. And thirdly, of course, is um, Benjamin, but known as Fish. Welcome aboard, Fish. Appreciate it. Glad to be back, brother. And of course, um, we actually got another guest who uh, joined us uh, for the roundtable. Uh, you, you probably heard him um, on the show. Uh, I think uh, quite. Uh, uh, I think quite a few episodes ago. It was about the discussion about the Dark Crystal uh, fan event uh, that occurred um, back last year, I believe, uh, or even a year before. I can't even remember. It's been that long. But Peter, um, thanks for come for being back on the show. Thanks for having me, Phil. I'm glad to be here. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, this is part of our uh, monthly discussions, and we've discussed about uh, Volume One of the uh, Creation Myths, and I think we'll just, um, yeah, just continue on where we left off and um, get on to Volume Two of uh, Creation Myths. Well, actually, um, actually, if you don't mind, before we actually start discussing uh, the actual story of Volume Two, I uh, didn't bring this up last time, but I have a couple of collectibles that I have from the series that I'd like to bring up. Uh, just in case people are out there would be interested in them. Yeah. Um, I do have the uh, free comic book day issue, which is a double issue. It has mouse guard on the back and then there's a little tale of sand, like pre preview in the inside. Um, that's the same thing that was included in the back of the hardback version of volume one. Um, yeah. And then I also have, um, Volume, well, I have volume one and volume two and volume three, but I also have volume one and volume two have been released in Spain. So I also have the Spanish versions, the Crystal Oscuro, uh, Mitos de la Creacion. Oh, that's nice, yeah. And those, yeah, those were each released two years after the U.S. releases. So the volume one came out in 2011, so volume one came out in Spain in 2013. Um, I also have a bookmark that was issued by um, Arkea. And it's just a 
a image. It says the dark crystal on it. It's the, it's strangely, this is the weird thing that I noticed about these is that I have this bookmark and then I have three different posters. The bookmark has, um, the image, it's part of the cover of volume three, but this bookmark came out as a promotion before volume one. Two of the posters that I have both have the same image. They're both the cover of volume three, but one of them, they're double-sided. One of them has Spara on the back, and then one of them has a tail of sand on the back, and or on the other side. And those are both dated 2011, which was, you know, the release of volume one, but yet they have the cover art for volume three on them. So I thought that was interesting that the cover arts had already been conceptualized by Brian Froud before the before volume one had even come out. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I guess it was interesting whether the, yeah, they sort of like really laid out the story, uh, had everything like way way ahead, um, you know, planning wise. Right, right. But then I, I like I recall when I was chatting to um Matthew Dallas Smith and um it seemed like he had a bit of you know freedom uh with with writing the story that he, you know, that he wanted to tell with, um, with the characters from creation myths. So yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting. Um, just how, I guess that all worked, um, whether they just, um, just got Brian Froud to just do all the artwork sort of all at once, um, you know, doing all the conceptualizing and all the covers. Right. Right. And then they sort of, you know, saved them for the, uh, future volumes. So yeah, no, no, very, very insightful um, trivia, Bland. Yeah, <laughs> appreciate it. Well, this, this, the third poster here, on the bottom of it, it actually says "coming 2010." So the release was actually intended for 2010, not 2011. But then having all these covers already conceptualized, it's kind of strange that Volume Three was delayed for so long. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not too sure. Like, wh- yeah, what what happened? Like, wh- why it got delayed for such a long time? Especially, yeah, I'm interested to know yeah. what the reason is for that. Yeah, and then this um, this third poster is actually the art um, that's in the very back of Volume One. It's that um, illustration by David Peterson, and it's got like the Gelfling ruins on top with the Mystic and the Skeksy, and then it has, well, you would. I would say Jen and Kira, but it could be uh, Gear and um, yeah. Um, what's her name? Um, oh gosh. <laughs> well, we'll bring her up. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to her. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, but yeah. It's so I guess that was an early um, cover art concept that they still included in the in the back of Volume One. Yeah, that's uh, it's yeah very very interesting. Yeah, but yeah, it is something like a. But yeah, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd love to know, like, in the making of doing this, the the trilogy of books um, for creation myths. I guess, I guess we'll start off, yeah, with uh, chapter one and um, of yeah the creation myths. And I guess, um, I guess it starts almost similar to the first volume. You have the storyteller telling um, the story, so sort of, sort of nice sort of pattern symmetry, I guess, with the storyteller continuing. Um, the story of uh, creation myths, and I, I guess you know there's a bit of you know sort of the irony with the small creature who sort of mu- must have been eating eating something poisonous when the storyteller's sort of mentions of beauty turns to horror. Um, <laughs> pretty pretty gruesome way to to die, but then I guess that creature ends up being sort of transformed into a plant. Um, 
uh, which I thought was kind of. I think that was one of my one of my favorite things about this opening right there is the name of the chapter, uh, the way of things. And it's very much like thematically a huge thing of the Dark Crystal where everything is circular patterns and all comes back around. You know, every thousand years we start anew, but we don't. And uh, I don't know, I just really love that as from this creature's, you know, demise, we see life again. And I thought that was really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and from the storyteller, you know, horror shrinks uh, from beauty. Everything ends and everything becomes something new in the end. Um, faith in the cycle is all we have. Um, so... Uh, just and just you know looking at the comic as well and it's like when um the storyteller's sort of um either punching physically not probably not just tapping <laughs> uh you know punching or tapping is you know don't eat it i think, he's, plant. Just, I think he's just grabbing him grabbing him by the head probably the hair yeah just... <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> maybe that's where their scruff is yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah and it's it's also there's there's not just the two aspects of good and evil there's also that third there's always a third aspect because Mm. you don't have a circular pattern with just two points you have to have that third point which makes a triangle but you can also make a circle with those three points so i don't know if that's part of that triple sun triple triangle symbol um, which is also in the beginning of the book and there's two of them on that page whereas in volume three there's three of them and in volume one there's only one so that i i kind of like thought that was cool that the volumes were marked by that symbol yeah, I love the mythology consistently appearing in all these. It's really a nice thing. Absolutely, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, so, I mean, this is sort of the part of the story where um, Olgra has sort of now has been focusing solely on the, you know, being in the observatory. And, yeah, it just seems like, I don't know whether she's kind of forgotten about sort of the past or, no, I, I don't know, not so much about the past, but about... um how um so yeah i mean she's more fascinated towards the stars and i think it's sort of must have gotten up to a point where she, that she feels like that she knows all she knows about the world of thra and that you know she wants to want more knowledge and and all that kind of stuff and i think in the in the, in, the, in that part you know um the storyteller i think um i'm just trying to find out yeah, the whole of Thra noticed her disappearance. So, with the storyteller, he explains that, you know, there's no definitive answer for her appearance, whether it was be- because of her shame for Ronep against the Oskex or just wanting to focus on the stars a- above. Uh, or whether it's pre... I mean, to me, it just seems like a little a little bit of both. Um, what, what do you all think of, of that? Well, well, that was uh, one question geez. I had. Oh, sorry, Peter, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, she's supposed to be a part of the world, so it's interesting that she would look outwards after a certain amount of time. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, well, one thing I was curious about, did you all take it as if she had been walking around Thra again for the 990 trine, and then she disappears for the last 10 of that to go work on uh, what we find out later in this book? Or how did you all take that? Yeah, that, that might have been. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, theory um, with that, that, that that could be a potential, because, I mean, I guess... With the observatory, I guess she's also trying to work out a way to get the um the Erskex back to to the home world. So I mean that that is probably you know why you know she's spending the last ten years trying to um to work out a way to uh, get the Erskex back to the planet for the next conjunction. Yeah, I thought that which kind is of, like, actually not revealed yet. No, 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 no. Oh, right, right. I- oh, go ahead. <laughs> 
yeah, it's not revealed, but I think it just like subtly speaks to like the uh, dependence of some of the creatures of Thra um, on Agra. And like, okay, she's been around, you know, for a godden day, obviously. And now she's gone for a few years and everybody's like losing it. You know, where is Augur? Why won't she talk to us? And well, uh, just I just thought that noticeable. spoke to like her yeah. power. Yeah, it's very noticeable that she's gone. They they took notice of it. Like, where yeah. is she? She's been missing. And and we as readers or as listeners to the storyteller still don't even know the answer yet. No, I just find that interesting, yeah, that, yeah, she's all, you know, sort of disappeared and but you know doing her thing for now so so from her sort of that side of the story for a bit it sort of goes back to um gear the um the musician um in chapter two the the reluctant song teller yeah so it just goes back from um his point of view you know of the story and he's at a place of time where i i guess coming from volume one when um he was uh when he witnessed the erskic um in the seas and um you know, hearing the sad song of the Erskic sort of made a big impact on him, like, I guess, almost made him, I guess, I don't know, almost somewhat depressed or, you know, I, I, it's, I'm just looking again, and a song that has, that had broken his adventurous spirit with his heart re- rend, uh, rending notes. And so it seems like he sort of uh, changed, changed careers from going from a musician to a sailor, essentially. And that, you know, that the song was just so, yeah, devastating that, um, you know, you couldn't want to, you wouldn't want to play it for anyone. But then, you know, all of a sudden, Rana, uh, you know, appears and, um, and, you know, they ask for an audience, uh, with, you know, Rana comes to the village to seek an audience with gear, um, as he heard about his, um, musical ability, so to speak. So, um, I guess the stories of gear must have, um, yeah, spread pretty far and wide to, um, actually reached to Ronip for Ronip uh, to appear. And I guess the the other thing that I sort of liked with this chapter, um uh when um Gear and um Cal uh, first met and um I kinda like how when Gear is sort of asking, you know, is there some protocol in properly addressing a galfling of your stature and she's like, No, we're all equals, you know? So it's kinda neat that yeah, just you know, with with Cal that she's, you know, I guess she probably doesn't see herself as a very high ranking that, you know, she just sees herself just as, just as like any other Gelfling. One of the things I like about this scene a lot too, is one of the things Ronup says, um, you know, it's news in the port that you've seen an Erskek and heard one of their songs. Like he really dotes on that. And I think it kind of like points back to how strong music plays a role uh, in this universe. And I just thought that was really interesting for him to point that out and be like, you got to hear one. Like I'm, I, you know, he's Ronup. He's talked with them, you know, he's uh, debated against them, but you got to hear a song and he kind of like held gear up on a pedestal there for a second, which I thought was really interesting. Well, it also yeah. kind of brings up that the Erskex have isolated themselves around the crystal and in the castle and haven't really gotten out much. So not many people have met the Erskex. Yeah, like it was almost like more of an honor, I guess, you know, to to be in the presence of the um, Erskex. Yet for yeah, Gero is a different story, I guess, or a different song, <laughs> so to um, so to speak. Well, and then Gear is also obviously well known. Ronup knows of him, and and um, I keep forgetting her name. Kel. <laughs> I'm sure it's on the page right here, Kel. <laughs> yeah, so you know, basically, you know, once he sort of reveals to Ronup that you know he's 
you know, that he has heard the song and, and Runham's like, yep, you know, brilliant. We leave in the morning, you know, <laughs> the ride will be exhilarating. Gray isn't really convinced. Um, but I guess what's really interesting that even though he sort of changed careers or sort of, you know, let go of his, I guess, musician path that he still carries the, um, uh, the bone flute, which, um, Ranip points out. Right. Like I actually, um, did some research, um, trying to figure out how the furka was made as to whether it was carved from wood or ceramic or bone. And it seems like an instrument that would play like that would have to have two windways, two fipples, obviously some more holes in it to get the range that it has. (laughs) But um, the only official source that I could find was in a, a version of the script. And it said that it was wooden. Well, here in this, there's two mentions that it's bone. So it could be that it's a bone that, you know, well, now the canon is that it's a bone flute. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe you just start, you know, that there were bone, you, you know, um, bone flutes. So then sort of later on during time, maybe, I don't know, maybe they've worked out a way to, to make, make them wooden and maybe make, make them sound better or yeah. I'm just, right. It'd be, yeah, like, I don't know, like, the difference between, yeah, just trying to think, like, between bone and wooden kind of instruments, like, uh, like, like the flute, whether, um. Well, wishbones come from animals that have wings, and they're usually pretty thin. Um, they are, I guess, technically still hollow, but they are, I guess, cartilage, not really bone. But then that's not to say that a creature on Thra is not like that. And it could just be that they're referencing the shape. Like, that's the shape of a wishbone, so that's a bone flute. Who's to say? And actually, I'm, I'm actually just curious. Like, I'm pretty certain, like, and that's sort of the same shape instrument that um that Jen has in, in the film, right? Yeah, Jen has a furcal. Yeah. No, I was just yeah, curious, yeah, if that was the case. And, yeah, like, I mean, certainly did look like it. But, yeah, just very curious, yeah. So that, that, that's kind of cool, yeah. Well, that raises some... That raises some questions about like where did he get it, right? Right. Because like, we all is, know that is, the, the decimation of Gelflings is right around the corner, uh, to, you know, so to speak. And uh, but yet he still has this this bone flute. So I don't know. What do you think, Bland? Well, is Jen a descendant of Kel and Gear? Right. That's the but question. But then the mystics did the mystics give Jen the flute? Right. Did they? Because did they Aldra, make it? Well, Agra mentions that the flute was a gift from from the Urskex. So the Urskex actually gave Jen the flute. I don't think they actually made it. I think it was a Gelfling-made item. But where did the Mystics get it? Right. In, in the aftermath. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, how did they come upon that? And is that instrument a rare instrument? Like, how many Gelflings have Furkas? Well, that was the question I had too. I was like, okay, if they're getting this and it's made out of bone, that means something has to die or be killed in order for them to have it. So I right. was like, where are they getting these items? Animals die all the time. Right. <laughs> why, why not use it? Why not use it? Do, is our other clothing? Is it all fabric or is it is it leather? Is there do they use skin from dead animals that they either kill or don't kill? Like Kira's skilled in the bola whip. Was that used for protection, or did she used to hunt with it? Yeah, I know. This is yeah. So so many questions. Um, <laughs> um, I yeah. 
<laughs> Don't I, me mean, that, I mean, that's the fun thing about, about it all, you know, discussing, coming out with different, you know, interpretations and points of view and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, Rhino Beer wants yeah, gear to, to, to come with him to the castle of the crystal to um, witness this historical moment, which, you know, as we, you know, look on to later on, that it is going to be the Earthkick's attempt of um, going back to the homeworld to... Well, I guess to witness through song. And we also meet, um, well, we also meet Free Tree. Ah, uh, yes. The little, yeah, the little, the little creature. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, with, um, with Cal. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, a very different kind of creature that we've, you know, seen, you know, besides, you know, the films and also, um, didn't see any, I don't think we've seen a creature like that, like in volume one. So yeah, it's kind of like a, a neat addition. Um, and, um, yeah, and of course, you know, Greer, you know, initially rejects, um, because he feels, you know, he isn't qualified as he stopped being a song teller, but of course, you know, he sort of changes his mind and, you know, and, you know, joins them for now. And I guess, I, I, don't, I don't know, I kind of felt like his character is sort of a little bit similar to, um, to Jan that's sort of like you know, with the film with, with Jan, he's sort of like not ready to take upon this big quest. That could be something, you know, not, not as a big quest compared to what he, you know, what he's been offered. Um, but just, you know, initial hesitancy and then sort of, yeah, you know, I'll change my mind, you know? <laughs> yeah. I like, I like the comparison of the two. The, the one difference I think that is kind of interesting is, <clears throat> excuse me, how gear is, you know, more driven by denial, I think. Like, I think he knows somewhere deep inside of him that he has a, you know, maybe somewhat pivotal role to play, but that he's somewhat of importance and that he's just in denial of that. Thus, which is why he doesn't do the song telling anymore. He completely stops playing songs altogether, just goes to work on a dock somewhere. Uh, whereas Jen, I think, is genuinely, like, uh, not um, educated about what is about to happen. I think he genuinely doesn't know when he has real fears. Whereas I think gear is more like, no, I, I can't do this anymore kind of thing. Well, bear in mind too, that, um, gear has been places, you know, he's mm -hmm. seen things to tell songs and have stories to tell songs with. He's been a sailor. Whereas Jen was basically sequestered his entire life. And then he went out into a big, scary world that he wasn't really equipped to deal with. So they've got yeah, completely yeah. different perspectives. Well, Jen hadn't even looked over the edge of the valley. He hadn't yeah. even seen the castle. Like Jen, uh, like I had reflected about how Jen's days must have been. Like basically all he did was swim in a pond, practice his flute, and go around from cave to cave for all his little lessons from all the different little Uru. And that was it. Yeah, very sheltered, very sheltered. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I think that even though Gear and Jen are very different characters, they both sort of are following um, the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey where they get this call to go on an adventure, and at first they're like, no way, that's not for me. And then they end up taking it back and going on this grand adventure. So it's kind of it's kind of nice to see the same thing reflected in both of their stories. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and also just thinking about the film, I just love um just like that moment where he's <laughs> with Jen, you know, when when he's you know about to go on his quest, he's like, you know, I'm not ready to go alone, 
but then it's like a couple of seconds later it's like all right i'll learn then and <laughs> sort of yeah doesn't yeah so i guess in a way so doesn't think too much he's like yeah you know okay i gotta do it <laughs> well it's also uh, yeah, his master's like dying gear. wish yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah it's his it's his master's dying wish too so his master had just died yeah so it's and like... told him yeah to go on this quest oh. and, yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so you know, from from that we get to um, chapter three, uh, among the pod people. I think this is the first time, like in the novel, that we get to see. Um, I think we do see the podlings, you know, in the first volume, but actually going to their village, the the pod village village of Noi. And it did actually make me think if this was the main um, village, uh, you know, from the film Dark Crystal that Kira and Jen. Um, go to or or they or if they do have lots of um, podling villages around uh, throughout Thra. Um, yeah, just curious if that, if that is the case. So I don't know with yourself, Bland or Petal. Well, I would think that there there's several different villages, um, but this I haven't really looked at the the official map, the area that the movie takes place in. But I would think that this is the podling village. Yeah. Because I'm actually, so I'm just looking at the image, like, with chapter three, and it, that's um, Olga's observatory in the background, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, no, I just find it, yeah, interesting, yeah, because, um, yeah, I'm just curious, like, how far um, Jen would have traveled, you know, when he felt, you know, when he went down, um, got off the um, observatory to sort of walking into the forest or whether he just sort of slept throughout the night or yeah and it just made me wondering yeah yeah so um and i guess that's the other thing about um looking at my notes with the the origins of the podlings whether they existed around time as the creation of the galflings or even um before that um Right, like maybe it was some kind of a, a strange, like an actual potato or root type plant that became sentient of sorts and developed from that. Just something that the world kind of spit out. Yeah, I I actually am of that opinion and that um, the crystal actually had something to do with the podlings coming into being. And they seem much more like something that is like a much smaller population than the gelflings. So they're it's more almost, directly almost related like the, to the world. Yeah, almost like the crystal is, well, crystals, which we find out later, which is also mentioned in the world of the dark crystal. But um, it's like they're almost terraforming in a way. Do you all see that at all? Like, Yeah, it's the creation of life, you know, the cycle of life. You can't just have plants. You have to have other things. And, you know, sentience is also necessary. You know, for self-awareness and self-understanding and, you know, through, you know, various mythologies, you know, the universe creating life to understand itself, that sort of thing. One thing I was curious about, too, when I, I saw this, it made me think of uh, that I'd never thought about for whatever reason uh, when I watched the film is did Kira know of Agra? You know? That like was another the, the, thing I thought about. Yeah, because they're in the Chamber of Life in the film. Agra, Agra kind of seems like she knows Kira in a way. Like she's not yeah. kind of surprised. Like, hey, there's Kira. He's just like, hey, you, Kira, call the animals. Right. Like, like she even has her name. Gift. Yeah, 
she knows that she has the gift. How does she right. know she has the gift? So that I, would. I wonder if like, they. Fr- yeah, I wonder if like they frequented together, and if that's the case, that Augur always thinks she was the chosen Gelfling to fulfill the prophecy. I don't know. It's just a. I don't want to jump off creation myths, but man, that was just so interesting of a thought to me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think like I mean, considering that this, you know, the Podling Village of Noy is pretty much right near her observatory. That you know, whether she did come to visit them or. You know whether you know she felt the presence. I guess you know potential. You know whether she could feel the potential um, presence of of um, a Gelfling nearby. And yeah, maybe her her intuition just gave her like she knew of Kira's powers or abilities just through her intuition of, with the world. And time time passes differently. I'm sure for Augur. You know she's been around so long that. You know, she may have only been down to the village a few times since Kira was there. And who yeah. knows how long the pod people live either. So, again, there's that perspective yeah. in the long run. Well, maybe that's why she was surprised to see Jen. She was like, I thought you'd be Kira. Like, <laughs> You're not Kira. Shouldn't you be a girl? <laughs> I guess, you know, from the, you know, the podlings, they, they party. Um, and, um, and then while that's sort of all happening... Um, well, I don't know if this was intentional, but they just they just stroll right into the village. Like there's they they just walk right in and on the Landstriders. And I don't know if this was intentional, but in the movie when Jen and Kira approach the pod village, the podlings pop up from the the plant life like from being hidden in the grasses, and those are actually guards. So, at this point Maybe the podlings don't guard their villages because there's no Gartham raids yet. Yeah, and maybe after, yeah, after what happened with the, you know, I guess you know, word would have spread far and wide about the Gartham attacking the Galfling clans that they sort of realized, okay, we need up our game to defend ourselves. Um, no, no, yeah, it's definitely interesting, and I guess you know, once they realized that there were the Galflings, that they're like, oh, oh, you know, Kira, and you know, come with us, and yeah. That it was all good. I like how they just call them striders. They don't call them land striders. They just say strider. That's <laughs> my strider, and this <laughs> you're gonna ride that strider. And first okay. um, the the mention of the um, podlings have animal soul speaking. I thought was really neat. Like that's how they that's how they know. It's kind of like Doctor Doolittle. It's like that's how they know how what the animals are saying. They just have this like soul speaking. Yeah, and would that be part of the power that sort of yeah that that they taught um because because they, they taught Kira how to speak with animals and and all that too. So um well then the, in in this um, graphic novel they also kept with the podling language. They they kind of kept that you know they're speaking a different language and Gear doesn't understand what they're saying. You have to you have to underst- understand and have a knowledge of the language to know what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, like um. Like it's, I guess it's not a, a renowned language or I guess, I guess with the, you know, with the Galfling clans, they're just sort of, you know, with their own kind and they probably don't learn, I guess, the different languages, you know, with the podlings or, or any of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Translated from the podling tongue is what it says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Yeah. That little. I, am, I can just hear the voice from the film. I love this little homage to the Falavam. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so from there, um, yeah, Rana goes and visits Olgra, and um, and that you know, Rana's still 
you know, accuses the Eskex for keeping Olga away from th- from the Thra people and mentions them as criminals um, to her just to, to, to tell her that. But then I guess, you know, as we sort of discover later on that, you know, she reveals that she is working with them on a way to build a machine to send them back uh, when the next uh, Great Conjunction comes. So I think that sort of, yeah, sort of fills in that sort of question of, you know, why she's sort of been, she kind of disappeared. And I guess it's curious because it's really, it makes me think of like, of everyone from Fra, it seems like that's, it's only Ronib that sort of like wants the Eskex to go away. That, I don't, I don't know, just, I don't know your thoughts whether, whether, you know, there's other people that sort of don't want the Eskex there. It just seems like Ronib's sort of the only one and, I guess Ryan and I guess the Erskics too. I mean, you know, they, they'd want to come back, go back to their home world, but it doesn't seem like anyone else um, want them to. Uh, I guess whether it's because they've sort of been, you know, uh, giving Gelflings like that advanced culture and, uh, you know, um, advanced technology that we sort of um, look at from the first volume. Well, as we later, as we get into the book a little bit later, we I don't want to say too much about it yet. Obviously, we're not there, but we find out a little more about Ronip's origins, right? And I mm-hmm. think that I think he just has like an an ability to maybe perceive some things that creatures from Thra can't necessarily perceive. That's that's kind of my take on it. Well, that could also lead to where is he his his true origins? Where where is that? And and why does he have this ability to? see the true um the full not necessarily the true nature of the erskex but the full nature right. of the erskex i thought it had something to do with the way you know his eyes are set up just like agra you know yeah. you can see things differently literally Whereas she she yeah. one of her eyes was burned when the erskex arrived did they do that on purpose so that they that she couldn't see the the evil or did the crystal protect her from the evil and thus burnt out the eye that could see it? Maybe or not necessarily evil, him. but darkness, not necessarily evil. And that she could only see the good side and yeah, not all the sides. Well, she also had that third eye kind of burnt into her head when that happened. Mm-hmm. Well, and I want to say kudos to the writers in this area too. I loved it. Every time I see Augur and Ron up in a room together, it's straight just mother and child. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> yeah. he's like... Oh, how how dare you? You're gonna help these these Erskex? You know, blah blah. She's like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's this machine <laughs> over here in the corner, Ronnie? Right, right. What do you think I'm doing? Get out of here! You know, like it's just it's hilarious. Yeah, and they're both thousands of years old, so like, <laughs> right, it makes son? it even funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they you know sort of starting to grow tired of each other, you know, because they because they both pretty much have like I guess you know the immortality, you know, they don't age or anything like that, so it's like. <laughs> yeah, there's always well, little little descriptions here and there, like the ageless and immortal. And I find that interesting when you throw that into the mix. At what point does the mother-son bond break? Because one has, you know, a biological age slightly older than the other, but experiential-wise, they're already well beyond any sort of "I'm wiser than you." Yeah, I think that's a big part of their push and pull. I mean, mm-hmm. it's Ronip trying to get his mother, who's you know supposed to be wiser than he is, to see some things that he's definitely seeing, and that's you know that's a struggle for for all of us in humanity even. So it's it's a really great little theme there. Well, Agrotech kind of tends to look inward, whereas Ronip looks more outward to the, you know, the creatures and the 
people of Thra. And, you know, he, he always uses the word Thra-born. You know, from Between Mother and Son, that um, that we go back to Gear and um, Cal and they're sort of, you know, and it's kind of cool that we yeah, get to see them um, dream fast uh, between Guy and Cal, you know, which sort of ends with um, Guy being haunted by the song knows that he has a longing for cal that he'll continue on with the journey of the um to head towards the castle of the crystal so yeah i like the little part where they he's learning how to ride the landstrider and you kind of get this feel that they're a lot more stable than we perceive like they can just run down a mountain if they need to (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. well and we get the addition to kota here as well which was pretty awesome the little podling that gets to make his journey to the castle yeah. But I love the dream fast. And the thing that I thought was interesting about it, uh, I believe he says something like, I thought it could control it, um, which was, I thought, a really interesting point in general. Uh, just like, because I've always taken dream fasting as something that it's just something spiritual. You can't control it. You touch hands and then you have all of a sudden uh, an understanding of one another and each other's lives and experiences. But it's like, is it something you can tell them you know like can you control certain aspects of it what did y'all think about that well i was wondering (laughs) well you go ahead ahead. oh okay um i thought a lot about that when i was uh, writing a few years ago for the uh, contest um and it was fascinating to think about limitations and things you can't control you know is it a form of telepathy is it you know a subconscious that takes over and shares everything necessary um, are can only certain people do it with other, you know, gelflings? Uh, is it, you know, something you can touch hands with a hundred gelflings and only one of those hundred you dream fast with? I mean, what is the significance? There's so many questions with it. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Yeah, when he mentions, yeah, that you know, I thought, yeah, I could control it. Um, yeah, whether you know he's able to, whether yeah, we're dream fasting if it is potentially be able to control sort of the visions of the past to send across to um, another Galfling. We also have to think that Gear has been, he goes out on those long journeys and he's felt isolation and he's not been around. There's even a point later on where she's like, well, you haven't really been around females that much, have you? <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's, it's almost like maybe she has, she's practiced more she's dream fasted more so she has maybe a stronger hold and can pull memories instead of just seeing them like seeing what he's able to show her um and it's almost like he kind of coyly asks her permission and she's like you know i i thought you'd never ask it's almost like it's almost like you don't just walk up to another Gelfling and touch their hand and dream fast. It's almost like it's a kiss, like not in a sexual sense, but it's it's more personal. You have to you have to have permission. Yeah, well, that, it definitely seems an intimate contact. Yeah. But I took his. Um, I thought I could control it almost as that he could control his reaction, and that he wouldn't still have that same sort of like haunting feeling that clearly is still eating at him just from hearing the song because I almost wonder if he doesn't want her to experience that same I don't know disjointing song that's really messed with him since he's heard it 
he doesn't want to spread the sadness of of what it caused him to onto Cal with the song and everything. Yeah. Yeah, and infection of the sad. Well, it kind of it kind of seems like maybe you can you can withhold what you want, but mm-hmm. that that Erskek song wants to be released. It wants to be known. It maybe that's what is pushing its way out. Yeah, I would guess that dream fasting probably pulls on the memories that are most emotional, whether that's a happy memory or a sad memory. Because when yeah. um, Jen and Kira are dream fasting, you know, you see happy memories and then you see the Gartham coming and you see the horrible memories as well. So, I mean, it would make sense that the more emotionally powerful memories are the ones that sort of pop up, whether you want them to or not. <laughs> yeah, I thought of it as kind of like an emotional... Uh, jigsaw puzzle you know all these pieces are trying to fit each other together through the dream fasting and it's inadvertence I mean I also had the thought that well wouldn't it be great for gear to go to another gelfling who has lots of experience in talking to different people including women and just you know <laughs> ask to dream fast and then hey great I have much more confidence now <laughs> yeah I don't know if any of you all are Farscape fans, but it kind of reminds me of Zan and how she would kind of mind meld uh, the the. Uh, oh, I can't, yeah. I can't think of the. Oh, I can't think of the race's name, but yeah, they have that mind melding ability. Now she's a Pau. Well, that's her like her that. rank um, right. as a like a religious. I'm um, Del Delvian. That's right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that also yeah. brings up, you know, are there dream fasters, you know, mystic dream fasters in terms of, you know, they're extremely powerful, you know, like fifth rank or something, or is it just kind of a muddle of some people have it more powerful than others, other people can develop it? It's yeah. Well, we know, we know from volume one that Augur can do it. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause back before then, we, uh, we only thought that only, um, it was like a golfing only thing, so uh, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, to see that yeah, the Olga was able to to dream fast, and whether anyone else can dream fast, maybe the Skeksis. <laughs> um, but maybe she also has the abilities that every creature of that world has, because she is basically one and the same. So yeah, in chapter four, the Crystal Palace, they they arrive. You know, the Galflings are sort of like, look, you know, it's it's Ron of the Heretic. Um, he's among us. And um, these Galfling, they look strangely na- more native or primitive in the way that they drew them. Yeah, because you think that um, because they're based like right next to the castle that, you know, you think they'd be the first ones to, you know, have advanced technology that the Erskic sort of gave to the Galfling culture. But... Yeah, with, with it, you know, with this, these ones that they're sort of, yeah, a bit more, yeah, that native primitive. Well, it also, yeah. it also says that they're the ones that worship the Erskek. So it's almost like maybe it's almost like a religious cult of sorts. Yeah. That's one thing I wondered about too with this was uh, whenever they are out there, I'm wondering like they've got all these terrible opinions of Ronip, right? Which is obviously sweeping the land, but who's promoting those thoughts you know i'm wondering if the erskex are also feeding that to them but then when ronup shows up they're like calm yourselves we shall deal with ronup he's a fine gentleman you know like if they're like just playing favorites and trying to get 
you know, I think they may may even enjoy the worship. I don't know. I don't trust the Urskex. I mean, from the sure. get go, they, oh. they strike me as too know it all. We know what's best for you, and just trust us. And you know, the Gelflings for the most part do, and that's unfortunate. Well, even Agra. Oh yeah, Agra yeah. trust them too. Yeah. Yeah, they've duped the best of them, except for Ronip. Yeah. Ironic statement there is so awesome, though. As long as you control the crystal, you will be a divisive force among us, Erskak. When they're saying, like, we did not ask for their adoration. We just claimed ourselves as kings and rightful owners of the crystal. We, we didn't ask for anything. He's like, you, you know exactly what you're doing, man. Right. It's, it's like, how could you say that we're guests? We can come here whenever we want. Like, right. Well, Ironic's well, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I look at it as, you know, some random guys came into your land, dug up a nuclear reactor. They know how to use it, but does that mean it's safe? No. Oh, yeah, we know how to use it. Everything's good. Um, by the way, here's some televisions to amuse you. <laughs> yeah. Here's the video game system, the Ori, that you can watch while we... <laughs> yeah. P.S.R. P.S.R. We burned out your eye. but we healed you (laughs) well i'll just say real quick i thought it was interesting like or well done on the writers that they they pull us back to the to our storyteller saying don't forget he's dying yeah that the character yeah is dying yeah absolutely and um yeah it's just a good just a good reminder of you know you know in case we've forgotten where where that song where the storyteller you know was up to and stuff well it for me, it brought up a question, not only who, but when, like, is this, mm-hmm. it's, if they're dying and they know this story, like, okay, is this just their version of the story or is this the truth? Like, is this canon or is this mythology? Is this just a storyteller telling their stories and they're, they're getting ready to die? Does this take place before the film? Does it take place after the film? Yeah, it's, it's, um... Because I, I I'm not too sure that it will get revealed in in fo- volume three. Um, I'm just trying to think. Like, is it shortly after volume three? Like, I'm curious to know when the storyteller is actually telling the story. It seems to me that it's before the movie. Yeah, I, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So then they go back, you know, back to the story, and you know, they they enter the castle of the and. The storyteller, the, we also find out that the storyteller believes in reincarnation, but not just within the world of Thra. They believe that they'll be reincarnated on another world. I thought that was neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interplanetary reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the other thing that I sort of yeah, noticed in this chapter, I think, yeah, the Oskeg mentions, or well, along the lines that, you know, that the crystals are scattered across the universe. And so the big question that sort of popped to me is whether the Urskex, um from their world and Thra are actually from the same u- universe or, or whether they're, you know, different universes. Because I guess, you know, they do say, you know, at the end of the Dark Crystal that, you know, we are all a part of each other, that sort of thing. So whether they are, like, connected from that, you know, the one big universe together... Um, 
just yeah just made me thought about that um yeah it says there are many crystals scattered across the universe and all are connected it would be good of ron up to recognize that we are all children of the crystal i really like that quote well and then we find out that they're that their world is actually a crystalline world because they they modeled the palace after their home world so their yeah their world is more made up of crystals and whatnot and it it seems like there's all these different crystals they say that the each of these worlds was formed from the crystals well did you all notice did you all notice that the the table that they feasted on was this is basically the same table that the skexies have their dinner yeah. at yeah I'm actually curious, like, do Earthskeks yeah, eat? <laughs> I would yeah, they, probably they eat not. You must be hungry crossing the mountain. We hope they this eat, meal would be suitable. They eat the souls of everything around them. Yeah. <laughs> That's what keeps them so bright. <laughs> yeah. Eternal. Yeah. Bright in the yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, still love this... Ron up here, though, man. Like he's like, look, the food's appreciated. That's great, but I didn't come to dine. I came to talk, and yeah. let's do this. <laughs> we admit to that you're all exiles, criminals on your world. Um, yeah, yeah. He's still fighting back, and he's like, you know, your paradise sounds like oppression. Um, yeah. So he, you know, it's kind of funny, I guess, that he still has this really, you know, very long grudge, you know, with the Oskex, like. He hasn't forgotten them, um, you know, from his point of view, what, you know, who they are and, um, yeah, considering, you know, this is like more than, you know, uh, yeah, you know, a thousand years later and yeah, still, still holds the grudge. Um, um, but yeah, as you know, they let Ryan know that, you know, tomorrow's the conjunction and, you know, you know, hopefully soon you'll, you know, you'll have your world back too what is what what it once was or all that kind of stuff so um well this uh crystalline chamber that he was in it what do they call it the there's like a proper the the erskett calls this room a certain room like the reflection the room of reflection yes yes it kind of reminded me of that mirror in the first um harry potter movie where he's like just stares there at his family and it's like shows you what you most long for and it just seemed like gear was kind of mesmerized not necessarily in the exact same way but it's like almost like you see yourself but you see within yourself and for any listeners it is the hall of reflection my apologies not the room (laughs) don't want to get beat up over that you know (laughs) i also like how they they describe the crystals there where one links to all and all link to one that mass relay from Mass Effect. <laughs> so the Erskags are masters of networking. So they're in IT. Well, there you go. That <laughs> would explain the I know better than you aspect. <laughs> One thing I always found interesting about uh, the Erskags, uh, apart from the fact that they seem like the, you know, thousandth generation beyond uh, the original Krypton Kryptonians from the movie back in the 80s, using crystals is that crystals crystals are you know aspects of growth they're also you know uh in our modern culture you know uh, associated with spiritual growth and healing but uh, although they grow uh, they can contain trap and reflect light uh, as well as you know let it pass through but they're fragile 
you know, they're not, you know, these things that grow and you can smash on it with a hammer all day long. So that's interesting in that you have this fragile container for light uh, and the possibility of it being broken and that light being distorted. So I thought about that in terms of, you know, the Urskex being a crystalline being in that, you know, how how pure in uh, their crystal structure are they? Yeah, it, it, I like that thought of them being a crystalline type being. And and I love these images that we get of we get more images of their homeworld where it's like all these floating crystals and they're all floating amongst them and it's yeah, that's really interesting. Well, that was one of the interesting things to me like when he talks about the beauty uh when the earth guy talks about the beauty of the homeworld and it's like didn't you all get exiled for treason? Like, obviously, you didn't find something beautiful about the way it was run, the way it was held, you know what I mean? Like, and the way you had to live there. I thought that was interesting, but it's just like looking on fond memories of the homeland, you know? Well, weren't they exiled for embracing their their light? That's the way I perceived it from volume one, was that that most of the Erskex on the homeworld were embracing the darkness, and they were the group that were embracing the positive light and that's why they were exiled. Oh, I thought that was the other way around. And I may be wrong on that. I have to do some research. I thought it was the the fact that they were researching how to split the light and the dark. Yeah, that's that's interesting too because that could be how they manipulated Augra into making this device that we're going to come up to. Right, exactly. Well, and speaking of the darkness, we get it here with Gear Song. I mean, this is where it gets awesome to me. Yeah, like um, that the song, yeah, you know, reveals that the song belongs to the Eskek and sort of, in a way, activated the darkness within him. And though he does say that the song is also like a call to their own kind. Which is another thing that I, I was thinking about. Like, he has to he has to use his dark power to communicate to the other Eskeks because... The, on the home planet they are they're all dark yeah because that was the other thing is like how can a song you know to call their own kind have some corruptness or you know darkness to it is it because i mean i wrote that you know is it because um it was a song by someone other than an erskek or whoever the the galfling that caused the darkness within the erskek um okay i, I had to pull up i had to pull up a something so it's they were exiled after they committed heresy by attempting to use their homeworld's crystals for a design that people that their people deemed folly, um, they can only return home once they've mastered their dark selves. So that that's all I got. <laughs> Meaning overcome their darkness, right? Or at least that's how I took it. It's it. I mean, I think you can take it in a multitude of ways, given the yeah. focus on balance. In the dark crystal world, I mean, I always took it as sort of they have to be able to balance their good sides and their darker natures together rather than trying to just wipe it out. Like maybe they're, they're too, too much light and not enough dark. And they yeah, have to find I mean, that like middle you, ground. If you're yeah. just denying, you know, it's like people who deny that they're angry over and over and over and over and eventually they explode. You know, you have to eventually find a, a balance. I guess so. Maybe that's what their their role was: is to find a balance within their nature. That's good. Good. That's a good point. 
But yeah, it was driving me crazy, so I had to look it up. Sorry. <laughs> I know my my Glad headphones <laughs> couldn't reach the the bookshelf. I was like, oh, I can almost reach volume. Yeah, one. my bookcase is just in reach. So I was like, come here, no, I need the, this. <laughs> I've got the Spanish version in front of me. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, like for myself, like I've got the um the PDF um version of of the book um which i think i got it when um there was like a um a humble bundle um the gym that they had of all the jim henson books and um volume one and two was part of you know that deal um uh just to yeah get them high quality pdf files so yeah which is kind of neat from um, what i've noticed the actual hard covers the actual books are getting kind of hard to get yeah yeah, they sort of become yeah, collectibles now. I think especially with volume volume one. Um, yeah, because I remember I think there was a tweet. Um, oh, it, you know, a couple of years ago, probably a year or so ago, from the illustrator, and he, he you know, he just realizes like, oh, crud, you know, <laughs> these volume ones are actually pretty expensive now. Um, yeah. yeah, they're they're pitching some high prices. Yeah, yeah. So Every, everything dark crystal is becoming expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just um. Just not enough of it, you know. Need more. <laughs> um, which I mean, I know the yeah. only well since since I stopped collecting um, and have re restarted to get back into it. The the reason why I stopped was because there wasn't really a lot that was being put out, and so now I'm just trying to get all these different international DVDs that I haven't added to the collection. And there's actually quite a few within the past ten years that have been released, like all kinds of. You wouldn't believe how many DVDs in different countries have been released for the Dark Crystal. No, which is yeah, it, it, it's pretty cool. Like yeah, even like even with the creation myths, you know, just coming out in different languages and stuff, um, which is pretty neat. And also, I guess it made me thought about like, you know, because um, whether they would actually end up re-releasing creation myths as like a one big you know book, um, so to speak, um. Yeah, I thought yeah. about that too. Yeah. Are there are there paperback versions? Well, I think because I think volume one. Is, I don't know if volume one's the only one that's in paperback. Is is volume two in paperback or? Um, I you no would idea. think I would know this, but I actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know that the Legends of Dark, the Legends of the Dark Crystal Volume One was released in Spain, but they never released Volume Two for some reason. On Amazon, Volume Two is only in hardcover. Yeah, I mean they must. I mean if they've released Volume One in paperback, I'm I'm sure they must have plans to bring at least Volume Two and Three in paperback. Um, at some point, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean if they did, it'd, it'd probably be like sometime this year when um, I don't know whether to try and coincide with the um, with uh Shadows of the Dark Crystal book that's coming out. I think in June, um, July this year. So yeah. I'm um, looking right at it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I want to say one thing real quick, if I can. When we see the darkness come out, I love the moment that the Erskic has with Ronip. He like turns yeah. around. He's in the midst of his madness. He's like, uh, Ronip, how long have you been here? He's, I just love Ronip so much. Like, looks like I uh, came in at just the right time, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I actually gasped when the darkness came out of the earth cake and I, yeah. I kind of gasped and then I giggled at myself. I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Calm down, Bland. <laughs> it's just inner darkness. We, we've all been there. It's just a graphic novel. 
No, but that, that speaks to how well this stuff is, is done, though, honestly. I'm, yeah. I felt the, the powerfulness of that as well, so I agree. I mean, I, I hear a lot of critiques on creation myths, and I still like Ron Up, and I still like I still liked Volume 2. I, I like them so far. <laughs> yeah, Volume 2 is much more straightforward, I've noticed, than Volume 1. Like, we get a lot more, like, mythology of, like, creation uh, you know, mythological things and how they came about, like the wings of the Gelflings and stuff like that. So that was nice, kind of breaks it up a little bit. But yeah, this is yeah. like straight, straightforward. We're going to that castle. We don't have those little interludes, the little fairy tales and stuff. Yeah. Right. But yeah, this yeah, they sort of yeah, just decide to yeah make it more of a straightforward story, not you know go back and forth between those um the short stories, which you know I I really like them, the short stories from the volume one, um. But I guess, you know, they sort of had more story to tell, you know, within creation myths. So I guess they wanted to, you know, focus more on that. Um, yeah, to, I guess to give it more that um, uh, screen time or, you know, the more pages to, you know, to tell that story. You've already taken too long, Delfling. Hurry! At last, the crystal calls. It is time. Time to return to the castle. The crystal calls! To the crystal chamber! Well, that's all the time that we have for this month's Trial by Stone. Stay tuned for next month's episode as we will continue discussing about the Dark Crystal Creation Myths Volume 2. So stay tuned for that one. Special thanks to Bland, Andrea, Peter and Douglas for being this month's guests. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can get to us at trialbystonepodcasts at gmail.com. You can follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash trialbystonepodcast or on Twitter at trialbystonepod. If you enjoyed the show and think that others would like it too, then please spread the word about the podcast. And if you get a chance to write a five-star review on iTunes. I hope you all enjoyed the show and come back next month for more Trial by Stone.